So I've had a, a thought going through my head, passing across the screen of my mind for the last week, a topic that I thought that I would touch on tonight, and it is the, uh, the topic of purity and happiness, or the purification of our consciousness. How, does that sound exciting? The reason I've been thinking about this, it's actually extended for the last several weeks because a woman named um, Mirka Naster, Mirka Naster, uh, just came out with a book about the life and teachings of one of my teachers named Anagarika Munindra, who is also, for those of you who know who Joseph Goldstein is, Joseph Goldstein is, in my view, the, the preeminent Western Dharma teacher. And uh, I don't mind saying that. He's my root teacher in the uh, insight meditation tradition. I've had, many, I've had several different root teachers in different traditions, but my main teacher for Buddha Dharma, my root teacher, the first person, the root teacher is somebody who really ignites the practice in your heart uh, brings some faith, uh, ignites some faith, some confidence, some, uh, some energy to, to practice and to awaken. So Joseph is my root teacher, and his root teacher was Anagarika Manindra. And in 1980, some of you know, I've told this story before, but in 1980, after having done a couple long practice periods myself and being full of full of dharma and full of myself, I had the good fortune while simultaneously managing a Vipassana retreat, I had the good fortune of being the attendant or looking after Munindraji when he came to, uh, to teach in the U.S. At, uh, in this case, it was at the Institute of Mental Physics, a place that We've been leading retreats now for 30 years down in the Southern California desert once a year. It's kind of like a pilgrimage. Highly recommend that you sign up for that retreat sometime. It's really, it's great. Anyway, I happened to be his attendant. I followed him around and just amazed by his, his delight in the teachings and Dharma. His mind was just laser sharp and as bright as could be. And the simplest little question, he would respond with a, a long dissertation. Some people like that style. I like that style, even though some people would start to glaze over. I just was eating it up. I also watched his humanness, his quirks. He loved to shop. He loved to look at things. He loved to look at little electronic things. And, and I, I have no idea whether his mind was filled with uh, greed or whatever, but he loved to... He, it, I think it was simply the enjoyment of, of the world of, of, um, of the senses. And I think he had it in perspective because there was a sense about him of a great freedom and, uh, and delight, like I said. And to be able to exhibit or flow with a sense of delight, you, you can't be... You can't be too in the throes of, of Mara, of that, that 
part of ourselves that blocks us, that makes us self-conscious and inhibited and, and worried and, and longing. You, you have to be somewhat free of the past and free of the future, at least for some point in the span of your life, to, get that, to have that sense, at least the persistent sense I had about him of delight and, and, uh, and ease. But what was, for me, the most important moment was the moment that I said goodbye to him. Because in my mind, I was a, I was a happy person. I had done some practice, I had experienced some of the fruits of practice, and I was, I was turned on, I was happy. And he looked at me as he was parting, and he saw that I had a generally decent disposition, or semi-happy disposition, but he looked into my eyes, and his last words to me were, may you truly be happy. And for some person, they might hear that and say, well, what a nice thing to say. May you truly be happy. For me, it was, maybe I'm not as happy as I think I am. (laughs) And it began a process of me reflecting and studying and practicing with the question of what is happiness. And of course, the Buddha's teaching is all about happiness. And anyone who's been here knows that I love to talk about the Buddha as Sukhiya. The Buddha was called Sukhiya, or the happy one. He was not called Dukkhiya, the great sufferer. Even though a lot of the conversation is about Dukkha, about that which in our life that's difficult to bear, the unreliability of life, the incessant changeability of life, the, the, imp- the constant impingement of our life, the painfulness of it, the, all, that, all that we have to deal with, the existential queasiness that everyone feels with the knowledge that we are just in irrevocably uh, bound toward our demise, that's a pretty, that's difficult to bear. But yet, it was actually coming to terms with those realities of life that allowed the Buddha, to, his mind, to awaken, to be able to be called Sukhiya, or the happy one. So I knew this word Sukhiya, and I read, heard some teachings, but I just wanted to get into it a little bit more. Then I started to reflect on the life of the Buddha, and what it appeared to me, what it appeared to me about his life, is that it reflected his evolving understanding, his own personal journey to find true happiness and his own evolving understanding of what happiness actually is. And I think I'd like to encapsulate it a little bit tonight, just saying very briefly, because it really is the whole of the Dharma. It's 84,000 suttas uh, given over 45 years. It all comes down to the Buddha's path to happiness. But the happiness of a Buddha is not... The happiness, not, it, it's not only the happiness that we usually think of as happiness. The happiness of, of just uh, being in a good mood. The happiness of getting what you want. The happiness of something having gone away that you didn't want. 
It's not the happiness, the happiness of a Buddha is not the happiness that depends on things being any particular way. The Buddha described two kinds of happiness. He described the happiness that depends on conditions, what he called lokiya sukha. Lokiya means worldly, dependent on worldly conditions. That, and it is true that when conditions are pleasant, when we get what we want, when we get rid of what we don't want, there is a feeling of pleasure, there is a feeling of comfort, there is a feeling of happiness. And there are countless ways that we experience this kind of happiness in our lives. I'm experiencing that kind of happiness right now, just sitting with you. I'm experiencing worldly happiness, the happiness of being in good company, the happiness of doing something that I love to do, the happiness of sharing my heart. These are, these are, um, these are gladness-producing things, and this is really nice. And the Buddha said, these are, it's really good to have this kind of happiness, worldly happiness. Because, if you, because it's not an accident that we could have this kind of experience. You may not be experiencing it right now as happiness, but I am. But if you are, and at whatever point you experience a sense of well-being or happiness in your life that depends on, on conditions being the way you like them, it is not an accident. It, the, your capacity to enjoy conditions, your situation, your mind, your body, your capacity to enjoy depends on your mind at least temporarily being free of preoccupation, being free of being tormented, being free of, of trying to be somewhere else. And in, able, in order to be able to have that experience of being temporarily free of preoccupations, not constantly reverberating from the effects of what we've thought about before or what we, what we plan to think about next or where we've been or what we've done, not reverberating so much with that, but actually being open and free. That depends on having been, at least according to the Buddha's teaching, and you can check this out in your own life, that depends to some degree on what he called purity of action. This is back to my topic of purity and happiness. This depends to some degree on having lived a life in general of non-harming, of not harming yourself to any great extent, not harming others. And if you have harmed others or harmed yourself, you've probably and are probably experiencing the fruit of that but to some degree, to whatever degree you can have pleasure and happiness in your life, this kind of worldly happiness, it's not an accident. It, it, if you didn't have some degree of purity of action, you couldn't enjoy anything. You wouldn't, be able to, you wouldn't be able to take delight. And I know that everyone here, from time to time, can enjoy themselves and take delight in what's happening. Is that true? So that's not an accident. It's a sign it's a sign that you that you're by and large you're a good person. Do you agree? <laughs> it's interesting what our mind does when I say that. Well, that may be true about you, but 
So it's all, it's, it is the fruit of, of our of a certain purity. But the fact is, we can, I mean, I can see that the evolution of my own practice over the last 30 plus years has been an increasing, I think it's just been by the keeping the general attitude of non-harming and the general intention to be mindful, to be non-harming, the general intention to, to cultivate kindness and, and non-harming that I have experienced over the last evolving slowly much more worldly happiness. And I've experienced, I feel as though I don't cause as much harm as I did when I was younger. I used to be a little, I was so full of myself that I was oblivious to the impact of my actions. And so the precepts were really helpful for me in my early Dharma years, and they still continue to be great supports, the basic training guidelines for living a life of non-harming so that we actually can enjoy ourselves and enjoy each other. And that's the basic training precepts of not killing, not stealing, not being exploitive or unconscious or unkind in our sexual relationships, being careful with our speech, being careful in the use of intoxicants, and uh, did I forget anything? Well, it's basic. You get the idea. So I've seen that, I, that there is more purity of action in the course of my life over the last 30 years. And I think as a result of that, not that I have not had my ups and downs and mental illness, and when I use that very loosely, just... <laughs> I'm definitely a happier person than I was in that worldly sense and perhaps in an, in an otherworldly sense as well. But the Buddha called this kind of happiness, the happiness, that uh, this worldly happiness, he called it, interestingly enough, not just the happiness that depends on being a good person, he also called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. Now, why would he call it that? Because this kind of pleasure the kind of comfort, the kind of happiness that we normally associate with as the most important kind of happiness, the, one, the kind of happiness that you could say we limit ourselves to, is the kind of happiness that depends on things being the way you want them to be. And to the degree that, we are, that our sense of well-being depends on conditions being a certain way, we are in, we're living in a pretty constant state of anxiety and the, slippery, the slipperiness of the inevitability of change, that pleasure is followed by pain, that gain is followed by loss, that praise is followed by blame, that fame is followed by shame, that these eight worldly winds blow in our lives. And so if our sense of well-being depends on just one side, the pleasure side, the fame side, the, the, what, I forgot the other ones. It's not the most important point. But if it's, if it depends on one side of those, we have what could be called partial happiness. Uh, Not a very reliable happiness, not a very secure happiness, but a happiness that is constantly fleeting. And the, the, the residue or the wake 
of our dependency on the pleasures of this life and the pleasures of the world, the wake of this leaves a, a feeling of a pretty constant feeling, not constant, but frequent feeling of dissatisfaction, a feeling of longing, a feeling of, of, great, of, of great need, a lot of restlessness and worry, a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of lamenting, a lot of lethargy, exhaustion from the, from the search for the, uh, and the attempt in our sincerity and in our innocence to find something in this world that is stable. Any of you relate to that? Something that is manageable. And to the degree that we're bound up in that search, we are really under the throes of the, our mind. We're under the throes of the, what the Buddha called Mara, or what's actually universally called Mara in different traditions, but the Buddha called Mara, which is that personification in our mind of the, um, the voice of doubt, the voice of longing. I actually brought along with me tonight several of the ways that Mara visits us. Our sensual desire, our discontent, our hunger and thirst, our craving, our lethargy, our fear, our doubt, our restlessness, our longing for gain, for praise, for honor, for fame, the, our, the extolling of ourselves, the disparaging of others. These are all what the Buddha called the armies of Mara. That when we're in the throes of that, which is really what happens when we tether our sense of happiness to the world of changing conditions, to conditions being the way we want them to be. When we tether our well-being to that, we get caught, we get hooked. And what it does to our feeling, the feeling tone in our life, is it feels like we... In fact, Mara has been translated as... Actually, I wrote it down, but I thought I would remember it, but I don't. Mara is one who withholds the water. What this means is, at least what it means to me, one who withholds the water. When Mara is operating in our mind, we feel that we have gotten cut off from the flow of life. We don't feel like we're being nourished, we're being fed, that we're in the groove, and we're just flowing with in harmony with the conditions of our lives. We're, we're caught in worry and anxiety and hope, and our mind it tends to be quite fixated on the past and the future, and in a state of, of what the Buddha called a state of bhava, or becoming, always in pursuit of what's next. Any of you feel that in your life at all? So this is what the Buddha called Lokiya Sukha, worldly happiness. A beautiful thing in that there are lots of ways that we can have pleasure, but not such a beautiful thing when it becomes this, our devotion, where that's what we look for in our lives. Uh, that's what we devote our lives to, that kind of happiness. Much better to be this to be a byproduct of our life rather than the aim of our life. The Buddha, on the other hand, recommended and discovered slowly, gradually for himself the second kind of happiness, which is obvious based on what I've said. It's called Lokutara Sukha. 
Lokutra means beyond the world, unstuck from the world. It's a kind of happiness or the kind of well-being that doesn't um, depend on circumstances, which means it's a well-being that is free of hunger, free of expectation, free of hope, free of becoming, intrinsic, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of any situation or any experience. I'll try to explain this a little bit. Going back to Lokia Sukha, worldly happiness, he called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. He said the, he also called it the happiness that depends on satisfying hunger, getting what you want. Lokutra Sukha, the happiness that is free of hunger. Those moments when you don't want anything at all. And sometimes people discover when they practice meditation that nothing special happens. But there are these moments when your mind is not looking ahead and it's not looking back and it's not looking sideways and it's just connecting in the simple reality, present moment, not entering into the world of Mara and all the, all the, your notions of your, either your limitations or your greatness, all the different ego trips that your mind goes on. Just for a moment, it's simply noticing, oh, that's an ego trip, or that's a pain, or that's the, that's the sound, or that's sadness, or that's discontent. It's the shift from being carried along by the stream of life being caught in what's next to simply noticing, oh, it's like this right now. And in that moment of stepping, you could say stepping out of time, experiencing life in its simplicity. And its simplicity is simply when something is seen, there's just something seen. When something's heard, there's just something heard. When something is felt, felt, thought, thought, Smelled, smelled, tasted, tasted. That's it. That's simple. That's really what's happening. Not embellished by, by what it means about me and about the future and about where I've been. Stepping out of our situation for a moment and stepping into our direct experience of life. And that's every moment of mindfulness is like that. And we discover that not much is going on. But that not much going, is going on holds in it the secret. That's the secret. That's the open secret. That our very being, in its simplicity, is the Buddha, is that well-being that doesn't depend on anything. So the Buddha saw that there was a, a great beauty to acting in ways that are non-harming. It's, an, it's a gift that one gives. In worldly life, it's a true gift, the gift of non-harming. And it's a great cause of happiness. In fact, he said, of the, in, the, in the realm of worldly happiness, and that's us, you know, just daily life happiness, there are four kinds of happiness. There's the happiness that... Um, that comes from having resources, having enough resources. 
That's the first one. Two, the happiness of sharing those resources and using them wisely. Very great happiness. The third kind of happiness, which is a complete foreign animal to most of us, the happiness that is uh, the happiness of being debt free. Now, I think the Buddha actually meant not just credit card debt. <laughs> meant you don't you don't owe anyone or anything. <laughs> but. The fourth kind of happiness that he described as being 16 times more valuable than the other three was the, the, um, the happiness of blamelessness. Such a gift to both the giver and the receiver, the, to, the, to the people who have to live around you every day and to yourself to be non-harming. Such a, a gift that others will not have to fear you, they'll not have to, uh, they'll not have to protect themselves from you. It is a, it's a beautiful thing. And you know people in your life that have that kind of purity that you just trust implicitly because you know they won't harm you. And I think everybody should think about this every day and aspire to be that, that um, to have that kind of blamelessness because it's something that we can all do. And it really, we're not just stuck being uh, miserable suffering causers. We can actually purify our, our words, our actions, our relationships, all of that. We can, we can work on it every day. Livelihood. So the Buddha recognized that, but he saw that no matter how happy you got as a, as a person, it was, you were still bound to the conditions of the world. And so in his case, he started to meditate. And when he started to meditate, he began to taste a, a more refined kind of what he would call a, a more refined kind of happiness, which he, which he called unmixed happiness or supramundane happiness, beyond the mundane. And it was the happiness that's sometimes called the happiness of purity of mind. Now, we talked before about purity of action, right? Purity of action brings its own kind of pleasure, pleasure of blamelessness. Well, purity of mind is a mind that is not, is not moving, is not caught up in greed, in hatred, in delusion. It's not... It's not wanting what you don't have. It's not, uh, not, it's not resisting what you do have. Not whatever. <laughs> it's, not, it's a mind that's not at least temporarily restless. It's not in any way, shape, or form uh, in a state of confusion or doubt. So it is a mind free of the, the basic Kilesas or torments of the mind, of, of longing, wanting, of aversion and hatred and restlessness and agitation and worry and doubt and dullness. It is a mind that is energetic, bright, uh, a sense of, of purity, where your mind just is not filled with anything but simplicity. Now that was a, a revelation to the Buddha that there was such a state of mind 
that could be experienced as a human being. So far superior to the ordinary pleasures of the ordinary worldly pleasures. And he got this really quickly in his meditation practice. Lucky him, huh? But he discovered something very interesting about this kind of happiness. He discovered that this was secretly, and those of you know this punchline, heard this before, he saw that even this kind of happiness, this kind of sukha, comfort, was actually dukkha, unreliable, impermanent, empty, not something that would la- not something that would last. And he saw so he saw that this kind of sukha was actually dukkha, or what we often call sukha dukkha. And sorry for those of you. So sukha dukkha. Sukha dukkha. <laughs> sukha dukkha. Sukha dukkha. Sukha dukkha is really describes our life. This move, this constant movement of our mind from sukha to dukkha, from dukkha to sukha, and back and forth. But this particular version of sukha dukkha is that what looks like sukha is actually dukkha, and we can spend a lot of time looking for these delicious, sublime states of mind. Not remembering, not remembering that, yeah, we'll have it for a while and maybe a lot longer than a a sexual encounter or inebriation from some kind of uh, great night out or pleasure of whatever pleasure may last a lot longer, but eventually it'll pass away. And also, and those of you who've done meditation retreats know that the residue of having had this kind of experience is you end up spending a lot of your next sitting, your next retreat, your next year, your next five years, trying to replicate that wonderful experience that you had. We call this carrying the corpses of previous meditative experiences. Because this, this, is, this is how Mara comes and blocks the flow of your life, blocks the river, makes you feel as though you won't be happy until you re, re, uh, retrieve that or re-experience that great, that great happiness. So unfortunately, this was not, this kind of, even though this kind of experience reflected a purification of mind, a mind that was made uh, malleable, that was made steady, that was made bright, that was made deeply calm. All those beautiful qualities that are so important in our life, even though uh, so many good things about this kind of um, purity that makes possible this kind of experience of purity of mind, it was still uh, dukkha. Subsumed by that umbrella, of that in our life that we can't hold on to, can't cling to. If it's not here right now, then don't chase after it. Think about that for a minute. If it's not here right now, let go.
just even for a moment when I stop aiming, my mind stops for a moment. I feel a little rest. My body may still feel a lot of pain or my heart may be heavy. My belly may be gurgling. It's not, none of these things are actually happening. <laughs> Could be. But if I'm simply here with that, not caught in trying to get somewhere, make it different than the way it is, if I'm for a moment just in harmony with whatever condition is presenting itself, I'm beginning to glimpse the next understanding that came to the Buddha, the the happiness or well-being that doesn't depend on what's going on. So most of you know the story of what happened to the Buddha after he gave up his meditative practice, his, um, his concentration practice or his tranquility practice that I just described. He then tried to, in order to find something reliable and to free himself, he tried to purify his, um, his body and his mind in a completely uh, destructive way by starving it and denying it any pleasure doing what are called ascetic practices or self-mortification practices. And it made him miserable and so skinny that he could put, touch his stomach and uh, push his finger through his stomach and touch his spine. Nice image, huh? I won't get too much into that image. But then he realized that uh, you've got to have You've got to eat well. You need some of worldly pleasure. You need to have your system in a state of gladness, in a state of ease to some degree in order to be able to develop enough presence of of mind, enough capacity to, strength of mind, to be able to meet life and understand it in such a way that you're no longer living in confusion or in the misplaced faith that some changing experience will make you permanently happy. In order to really develop that understanding, you need to have strength of heart and mind and a very uh, healthy body as much as you can. So that's a, a reminder for all of us, in spite of our sometimes our best attempts to hurt ourselves, <laughs> and that's also Mara, is often that one that says, you know, even though I know better, I'm just always just eating the wrong thing and too much of it and not doing this or not doing that. Just a reminder, it's really helpful to take good care of your body. Just feed yourself well. It brings, it brings gladness. It makes you able to, if a body is, is to the degree that we're able to, because our bodies aren't very reliable, but to the degree that we can have some measure of, of, of health and strength, it renders our discursive mind a little bit more, uh, a little less troublesome. So getting back to the evolving understanding of happiness, what happened next? The Buddha used his strength of mind to pay attention. Instead of to enter into some great state of mind, some great transcendent state, He used the strength of mind to simply examine moment by moment 
to understand deeply what is the nature of this reality, to see if there was something, some place in the midst of it that he could say, where he could really find happiness and he could somehow be able to conquer these tormenting forces in his mind, the voice of Mara, that he could finally stop that tormenting voice of doubt, of fear, of discontent, of longing, of that constant demand that we have to be special or good or better or best, the torment of the comparing mind. He says, I've got to find that which will free me from these voices, from this, these movements that just blow me like the wind, that just throw me off my seat. So he steadied himself. Use the training that we all do. If you are, if you're interested, or if you've practiced some degree of mindfulness, continual practice of mindfulness, it makes your mind super strong, super steady, super bright, and that's something we can increase every day. The more you make it part of your life, it ebbs and flows, of course, but progressively over time, you develop this kind of steadiness. And he used it at this time. And then what did he do? He did what I invited you to do tonight. He sat down, said, I'm not going to move. I'm going to find this gentle stillness. I'm going to arouse this connection. I'm going to anchor my attention here. And then I'm going to open all the sense doors. I invited you to open your senses. And then let everything in. Let the sounds in. Let the thoughts in. Let the moods in, let the sensations in, let the breath move, and he let it all in. He let Mara come in all the temptations and all the voices of doubt, of fear, of self-judgment, of inflation, of deflation. He let them all in. And the way he conquered Mara, I'm using Mara just because you can imagine Mara is this being that's coming and assaulting him with these tormenting thoughts and saying, who do you think you are? It's that voice in us that says, you're really just a a fraud. You're an imposter. You're not really a meditator. You you go on Tuesday nights, but the rest of the time you're just completely an unconscious, wanting, craving, longing. Uh, You just want fame and shame. You just want to be the great meditator. You don't want to really be free. Anyway, so he, <laughs> he invited these voices in. And the way he conquered them was not by deleting them, not by making them go away, but he, he conquered them by seeing that they were just changing conditions, that they were like weather fronts. They were just empty bubbles popping through his mind, the 65,000 thoughts that we have every day, 90% of them repeats from the day before, they're just empty bubbles. The sensations, the moods, all the feelings that we have about ourselves, the humanness of us, is, it's quaint. And I can, we can all relate to it, but it's, it's not really uh, reliable. And it doesn't really, these thoughts and feelings about ourselves, they don't really define us. They're just... Insults, approximations, distortions, views, they describe a situation of our life. They don't describe us. We are indescribable. And the more he saw that all the 
the voices in the mind were, were just that. They were empty bubbles. His mind relaxed. It stopped pulling onto the pleasurable ones, pushing away the, the ugly ones, trying to rearrange everything just to have a perfectly quiet mind. He gave up all of that reactivity, brought a kind, open attitude, and he saw that everything that arises passes away. And whatever arises and passes away, if you hold on to it, you suffer, you get rope burn. If you let go, you, you become free. And the more he just let things come and go, the more he, everything was there. Everything that had always been there in his mind. Mara came even after his awakening. All those temptations still came into his mind. But he had touched, he had begun to touch that sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was in his mind. Didn't depend on tomorrow, didn't depend on yesterday, didn't depend on whether he thought he was great or whether he thought he was a, an idiot. His, his sense of well-being depended on nothing. And as his mind became less reactive, he fell into what he called later um, the joy of equanimity, the happiness of insight, vipassana happiness, uh, to this, the, the mind that just is non-reactive. And as his mind rested in that non-reactivity, it, it opened. And in a flash of insight, he realized that what he had always looked for, that highest happiness, the happiness that is free, the happiness that is unstuck, is none other than the very nature of our consciousness itself. The nature of our own minds. Our own, our own intrinsic nature, our own wakefulness itself, is unconditioned. It's not born. It doesn't die. It's not, it doesn't depend, it doesn't, it, it's not improved by your good fortune, and it's not diminished by your misery. And he saw that our very consciousness itself is, the, is our true reliable refuge. And that's what we should, if we, if we have the eyes to see, that's what we should devote ourselves to, is to begin to trust more in that awareness, in the one who knows within us. And not look for anything but this. Too bad I forgot all my readings tonight. I had some good jokes to share, but <laughs> I, off, you know, once I once I'm off and running, I forget what I wanted to say before. So that's um, just a reminder that we do we are very trainable, we are coachable, we we can purify our actions, we can purify our minds. They're all good things to do, and we can purify our view and our understanding to see that whatever arises passes away. And that's, as Ajahn Sumedho says, that's what Buddhas know. That's the difference between a Buddha and an ordinary person. A Buddha knows that that, w- that which arises passes away. And so they let go. They stop clinging. So may you all uh, be free of clinging, free of condemning, free of confusion. And may all beings be free of confusion. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
and for the for the five hundredth time, never get tired of sharing this. The words of the great Tibetan master Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in your body-mind has no ultimate importance, real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with it, becoming attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emma Ho, marvelous. Everything happens by itself. chest. <laughs> Actually, I love that topic. Um, this Saturday, just a few brief announcements. This Saturday, I'll be leading a day-long at Spirit Rock on serenity and equanimity, on that, that uh, quality of mind that, that can come for each of us the more we live in harmony with things the way they are. And it's, it's really the culmination of all the, the various lists of the Buddha this quality of equanimity, the last of the factors of enlightenment, the last of the parmis, the the purifications, the last of the so-called divine abodes or or heavenly qualities that we uh, express when we are awake. It's the quality of equanimity. So the whole day will be on equanimity and hopefully it'll maybe bring some balance so that we can meet the joys and the sorrows of our lives with, uh, with a little less reactivity. And let's see... Oh, and October 17th, this is just a way in advance, but I will be the Spirit Rock teacher leading the family day. 
for those of you who have kids and want to come to the family day, it's a really cool thing to, uh, to uh, get together with other parents and dealing with little kids. I'd say that for me, the place where I'm, I used to be doing sports where I was the most mentally ill, now it's dealing with my daughter, where I am the, I am the Mara is the most, Mara just sweeps me under the rug. Anyway, so that will be a day on kind awareness on October 17th. Sunday the 26th. Thank you. Did I say Saturday? Sorry about that. And once more, a reminder that it's next Tuesday that we have the, uh, the non-potluck. And you've heard enough about that. But if you want information, again, go on to the website, missiondharma.org. And last but not least, as I speak about every week for just a few minutes, this room costs us, and it's moving, and it's, we've been altering a little bit, we negotiate a little bit of, with the rent, but it's going back up to the $150 per week, so a little extra for the, for the room rental, much appreciated, but room rental Donna on a regular basis will really help us be able to keep practicing here, and the church has been kind enough to allow us, if you'd like, to write checks to the church and put in the notation area, Mission Dharma, which is our name. Mission Dharma, and your check will be tax deductible. So if you're so inclined, you can do that. Also, we have a, we'll get into that another night. And also, anyone who takes this seat, as I am tonight, we, teaches on what's called a Donna basis, offered freely, and the invitation is for that circle of giving and receiving to carry on as it has for 2,500 years, for you to offer some support if, you, if you're able to, if you wish. If you want to practice generosity, teacher Donna and room rental Donna go in the basket there, along with the checks to the church if you like. And uh, thank you in advance for all support, teacher, room, and thanks for your practice especially, and please be mindful. Anything I'm forgetting? Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.